Welcome to a very special episode of Known Pleasures. Today, we're very fortunate to be interviewing one of the founding members of not one, but two iconic bands of the post-punk era, Joy Division and New Order. So enjoy the insight, the ceremony, and the atmosphere as we interview Peter Hook. Hello, Peter. Can you hear us? I'm sorry, sorry, I'm late. I didn't expect Peter. them to be... Uh, wow. Just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Uh, we, we you, can, you can hear us, but we can't hear you. Just let me uh, tick this. We can try semaphore. <laughs> How about that? How about that? Um, I'm here. I oh, can okay. hear you too. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. How are you? I'm okay. Excuse me being in my dressing gown. <laughs> That's okay. We figured it was morning. You're in London? It's No, I'm in Manchester. I'm in um, ah. Alderley Edge where all the footballers live. Beautiful. <laughs> who are who are the most famous footballers who who you see down the shops? Oh my God, mate! Um, our next door neighbour was David Beckham oh, for quite okay. a while. Then we had Tibes. Mm-hmm. We had uh, De Gea. Was he used to always come and investigate when my alarm went off at home, and uh, <laughs> I'd come in the I'd roar back, of course, in the car, and there'd be a guy in the drive. And uh, I get out of the car thinking, "Oh my God, who's this?" And it was David De Gea going, "All right, Peter, nobody here. It's okay." <laughs> <laughs> He's got a safe pair of hands. Don't worry. Yeah, we've got Rooney um, round the corner. Wow. Uh, yeah, you name it, you know. And I see, funnily enough, in my local park, I usually see all the young kids from City. Oh yeah. Okay. That uh, you know that join. They're always playing in their. Um, practicing in the park and it's quite funny because uh, manchester city did a um a hacienda collection for the their shirts just for the players wow. and uh, wow. I'm watching these kids you know like 17 18 19 whatever playing wearing hacienda shirts and thinking i wonder if they know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then Man- yeah. uh, united just to keep up um, did an unknown pleasures range of um, ah, football okay. club wear, uh, some for uh, just the players. And I see them young kids, you know, and I'm so I'm walking through the park with the dogs, watching these kids running around in unknown pleasures football shirts that, that <laughs> play for United and wow. thinking, oh, my God, this is, yeah, it's quite a strange um thing to go through luckily I'm, after all the years i'm used to it you know. i bet you are by now yeah <laughs> um we should uh, tell you a bit about ourselves i suppose peter and graham is one of our guys i'm, I'm mark that's patrick just thought i'd uh, explain straight up our podcast is called known pleasures i don't know where we got that name from. yeah it's a good name <laughs> <laughs> we discuss the post-punk and new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s we normally devote an episode to a particular band but every now and then we get to interview someone like yourself. So I'm not going to be asking the questions. I'll pass it over to Patrick to ask the first one. Peter, we saw you and the light play in, was it 2017 when you last came to Australia? Oh my God, you know, Australia was uh, has been wonderful to us in the same way that it was with New Order. And we actually yeah. got there very early. Um, we I formed the light to play the music to celebrate 30 years of Ian's life. Yeah, yeah because I was appalled, really, once the new order finished and when we split up. And I thought, why have we never celebrated anything to do with Joy Division? So that was how I started. We actually came over to Australia it's pretty quick. Australia, uh, in Melbourne, was our seventh concert. 
Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, we were really young by the time we got to Australia, and I must admit, it's been fantastic ever since. I remember the very first time I came to Australia was it was in 1982. Yep. The order. Yep. Um, there was a factory, Australia, Australasia, as it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely guy ran it, and we we managed to get over really quickly. Um, to play over there, so yeah, I've been very lucky to um, to be treading your streets over and over again for a long, <laughs> long time. So yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful. And the the great thing about this tour, uh, it's doing so well that um, they, they've actually booked me for next year uh, as well. <laughs> so yeah, I was yeah. like, this is this is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, it's always a pleasure. To come, I find that the audiences, um, Australian audiences, are uh, amazing. They're very receptive. They, are, they also the shock that it gave us when we came from England first off was yeah, that yeah. in England most of the audiences were all male. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. And because of that, it brought with it a, a quite unique set of problems. And then, of course, we got to Australia. You know, I can remember playing in Coogee Bay in Salinas. <laughs> uh, Two thousand people, and they opened the doors at six o'clock in the yeah. afternoon. And I said to the guy, "What time are we on?" And he went, "Oh, you'll probably go on about 11 And I was going eleven, and you're opening <laughs> at six. <laughs> and then, of course, when I went on, I realised why, because everyone was absolutely freaking plastered, yeah, uh, and it was right. absolutely unbelievable. I think it was 110 degrees on stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I had a roadie, or my my mate actually was pouring iced water down my leather trousers. So yeah, <laughs> we have some very very fond memories mm, of uh, yeah, yeah. playing in Australia without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And it was it was pretty much summer as well. I I saw you play. I've still got the ticket stub. This is how tragic I am. The twenty uh, fifth of November, nineteen eighty two, uh, in Melbourne at the Palais Theatre, and um. I'll, I'll, I'll get to this a little bit later on, but my, my theory is that the first time you ever played Blue Monday was at that gig, which I think might have been your first Australian gig of that was, tour. Yeah, it was. Uh, I can remember it. Yeah, and yeah. every time I get to uh, Melbourne down that end, I always go and have a look because it's yeah, it yeah. Was a really weird gig. I mean, there, there wasn't many people there. Oh, really? Well, it probably was the first time that we played Blue Monday, yeah, because we mm. towed. All the sequences, oh my God, how they survived, <laughs> I will never know. But yeah, so the, the adventure in New Order used to be making the bloody things work. It used to take us, we used to have to get there about midday, and it'd take us like five or six hours to get the crap working together again, because it really was steam-driven, and you'd be there like winding it up, you know. <laughs> it was the complete antithesis of what everybody thinks about electronic music. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I mean, we were very lucky. Uh, in Viv Lee's, um, having somebody who looked after us very, very well. You know, Viv went on to do the Big Day Out. Big Day Out, yeah. We were the yeah, first yeah. international band that Viv and Ken West had brought yeah, over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those, those guys were amazing to, promoters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ken sadly died, didn't he, recently, which was... Yeah, you did. I actually worked with Ken West in a previous, when I was in bands myself. Wild guy, guy. wild yeah. L lovely. They, they, lovely, they were man. very much um, like chalk and cheese, mm. but they were great, <laughs> great to be with, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was nice from that aspect, you know, to be the first international band that Ken and Viv brought over um, and then to watch them go on and do Big Day Out as they did. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was it's interesting. It was interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your bass sound. I know it's something that's talked about a lot. It's so recognisable and, and copied, and you'd be in any of the, anybody's top five, you know, bass players of that era. Uh, we know that JJ from the Stranglers was an influence on you. We we had him on here. We talked about that with him when we interviewed. Him. <laughs> Did you? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I met him. Uh, everybody has been trying to get us to meet for years. Oh. Now he's my hero. He is and my yeah, hero yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I, I was going. No, I don't want to meet him. I, I don't want to meet him. I had a very unfortunate. Um, episode with Lou Reed once that uh, I, I never want to relive with anybody. So well, I heard yeah, you met George Best and it was the same thing. He was quite rude to you. Yeah, George Best was incredibly rude to me, yeah, which was which was very sad, but I'll put that down to uh, alcohol. Um, but yeah, but I mean, JJ, I actually met him for the first time last year at a festival. Uh, we, <laughs> we shared the same tour manager for a bit and Gary said to me, he said, I'm going to get you two together if it bloody kills me. And he did. <laughs> And it was really weird. It was really nice. And yeah, it was, I suppose it's like the, the you know, the closing of a chapter. I think he's um, mellowed a bit too. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it was weird. You know, I mean, as when I started, um, I was always looking for something to enhance, shall we say, what I was doing. Um, I went to see The Clash in Bellevue here in Manchester and I watched The Clash and I thought, my God, that bass player looks cool. Didn't he? And I thought, why does he look cool compared to all <laughs> the others, you know? And Paul Simonon just had a long strap and he was playing it very aggressively, swinging it around and, you know. I mean, it wasn't, as much as I hate to say, he's a different bass player to me. So it wasn't particularly that aspect of it, but I thought, right, I'm getting a long strap. Uh, and I went and got two straps, put them together, and then add it round my knees. And then I had to learn <laughs> to play completely differently because the interesting thing about guitar strap length, I don't know if you know it, is, is that the shorter it is, the easier the instrument is to play. Mm. The longer it is, the more difficult because you're always bending your hands round. Uh, so I was renowned for my bum notes um, because of that. But yeah, um, so I had the strap length all I needed then was the other direction. And I went to see the Stranglers play in um, Bingley Hall in Stafford. Big gig, actually. And uh, it was fantastic. And I listened to Jean Jacques. And the sound of his bass was wow. It was hypnotic. Um, it was like five minutes time, you know, that period. Mm. And I just thought, oh my God, he has got it. He's got the sound that I want. Um, and I remember uh, hanging around in the end and running to the, down to the front with a borrowed biro and a piece of paper to write down Jean Jack's equipment so that I could get it. It was a high watt 100 amplifier and a two by 18 Vox bass cab, the one the Beatles used actually, was that cab. Uh, I didn't know what pedals because I couldn't see that far. So but God knows if I got it right. But I ended up buying a high watt 100 and the speakers. And yeah, it did. It helped my sound. Um, the actual playing style is down to, I've got a picture of Ian on the wall here that I see every day when I'm working. Um, and it was basically my amp at the start of the band was crap. This was before the high watt and the 
box cap. It was really bad. I paid £10 for it, the speaker. It just sounded awful. It was, I couldn't hear a thing. And Barney had got his hands on a Vox UD30. Again, a wonderful amp that the Beatles used that was 100 watt RMS, 100 watt output. It was great. It's one of the best guitar amps ever made. And Vox didn't make many of them. So they really are collector's items. And we had one. Got stolen in America. And he never been able to replace it. Um, so he had this wonderful guitar sound that was blowing us all away. I couldn't hear a bloody thing. And the only <laughs> thing I could hear was when I went high on the strings. And soon as I went high on the strings, Ian Curtis would go, whoa, 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 that's it, that's it, okay, play like that, play like that. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, whoa, I thought that was a good reaction, wasn't it? You know, whoa, great. <laughs> and so literally every time we came to rehearse and write, he'd go, play high, okay, play high. <laughs> and it was as simple as that, if that's simple. So you need two world-class bass players, a, a mad lead singer, uh, and you, you're rocking. And a desire to be heard, yeah, above the racket. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we, I was just talking about this earlier, actually, with um, uh, a friend of mine. When you joined a group, a punk group, you had to be very tenacious and you had to be very single-minded. And the the scary thing, thing in music that I've found is, is that you went through this Simon Cowell phase of everybody telling you whether you were good or not. And... You know, if you're in a group for someone to tell you you're good, then you're, you're not going to do it. You know, mm. you're in a group because you have the ultimate self-belief that you can do it. And that is the only thing that will keep you going, actually, because if you're dependent on other people. I mean, what would Simon Cowell have said to Ian Curtis? <laughs> what would he have said to Sean Ryder? What would he have said to Ian Brown? Mm. You know, Marky e. Smith. Can you imagine <laughs> Simon Cowell with Mark I'd like e. Smith. to have seen that, actually. That would be good. <laughs> that, that, that would be good, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, there is there is a tenacity and you, you've got to obviously become used to rejection. And uh, I was just talking to my mate and he, he was saying to me, I was doing an interview, um, it's the 40th anniversary of the Hacienda this year and we've got a BBC documentary that's on on Saturday night, um, uh, A History of the Hacienda on November the 5th. Um, 10 o'clock uh, and we were he was saying when when was your most amazing gig and really my most amazing gig is my next one <laughs> you know it's as simple yeah, as that yeah, after yeah. fighting for years and years and years to get any concert and I remember the concert that I remember most was we played in Oldham Tower Club as Joy Division and Oldham Tower Club on this monthly punk night had been really, really successful. And we were really chuffed to get it. I think we were we were 30 quid we were getting for the gig. <laughs> and um, we went to Oldham all, whoa, really excited just down the road. And when we got there, we set up, sound checked, everything was great. We were all ready and nobody came. Nobody. <laughs> there was no audience. And the barman came out and started sweeping the floor while we were playing. <laughs> and when we finished the song, I'll never forget, it was this black dude. Um, we finished the song and he went, hey, man, he says, you know any Hendrix? <laughs> we went, we're a punk band, we don't play that sort of thing. Back it in, you know, and we, we played a full gig, played our hearts out. At this gig, we nobody there. And, you know, when you've done that... <coughs> 
And then you end up headlining Glastonbury for 175,000 people. <laughs> when anybody says to me, you know, I just say, as long as it's somewhere in between, <laughs> no, and 175,000, then I am ecstatically happy. You're a happy man. Yeah. And didn't, didn't, you have a, man yeah. didn't you have a gig um, in Huddersfield where one person turned up? Is that right? Yeah, that, that was Huddersfield. Yeah, yeah. So that, that that's yeah, none yeah. and one. That's better. Yeah, so, it's an improvement. You know, you were, yeah, you were Matt, improving we were on a roll. incrementally. <laughs> yeah, if he'd have had a dog. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we'd, have, we'd have been, what's it? I mean, I remember when we toured um, Australia, actually, uh, we, we had a gig in Adelaide yeah. uh, where they filmed Mad Max, wasn't it? Oh, around uh, that area, yeah, Broken yeah. Hill. Yeah, 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 that yeah, area. yeah. So, and I was really excited about, because it was Mad Max, which was one of my favourite films. And um, Viv came to us and said, oh, we're going to have to cancel the the gig in um, Adelaide because we've only sold one ticket. <laughs> and we were like, well, can't we still go and do it? You know, and he went and he said, listen, he said, the, the only way that we'll do it is if the guy phones up and asks if he can bring his dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, we didn't get to do that one gig in Adelaide. Wow. Because uh, we'd I, only I, sold one ticket. I, I thought there were quite a few people in Melbourne, like several hundred or a thousand or whatever. So the idea that in Adelaide there's yeah, going to be yeah, one yeah. person. I mean, you know, it, it's yeah, it, it, it's still not a surprise really to, um, even as New Order, you know, there are uh, markets that you've, you've not yeah, yeah. reached, we've not reached, and they that's just one of the, the weird things, yeah, yeah. you know, it. I suppose you get spoiled in a way. Mm. I mean, we were intensely spoiled in New Order in that we got asked to go everywhere, mm. but unfortunately the other three wouldn't go anywhere. So, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was the most frustrating period of, uh, of my life, you know, having all those wonderful songs and the demand to go anywhere and they wouldn't bloody go anywhere. I mean, it's no, it's a fact that the members of New Order have played more gigs in their 50s and 60s uh -huh. than they ever did in their 30s and 40s. Mm. And uh, try and explain that to me because I don't understand. <laughs> it's a mystery, right? <laughs> it's bonkers. Yeah. But you're here to, to play Unknown Pleasures and Closer for us this time, yeah? Um, yes. I wanted to ask you a question about Unknown Pleasures. Obviously, it's a massively influential album. I did read somewhere that when you heard what Martin Hannett had done with the finished album, that both you and, and Barney said, you know, you hated it and you wanted to sound like the Sex Pistols. And my, my question to you was, after all this time, 40 plus years, do you think that now that album is as influential as Nevermind the Bollocks because it changed the direction of music and it opened up the doors of where you could go after punk? I think It's actually more influential than Nevermind the Bollocks because say it right. had a more ethereal more Doors-like sound. I mean, yeah, I'm, you know what? I was an idiot, and in many ways, I still am. So don't worry about that. You're in very good company here, lad. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those weird things. Me and Barney just wanted to... You know, we were full of piss and bile, and um, Martin Hannick gave us this wonderfully polished thing, and we were like, what the fuck is that? You've killed it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was absolutely bonkers. I mean, oh my God, you know, if there aren't many people that I'd love to give a big bloody hug to, but 
I do wish that, you know, Martin Hannett was one of them. Mm. Um, he was treated very shabbily by Tony and Alan Erasmus in Factory when they fell out. I mean, you know, Martin's big beef with Factory was that they shouldn't open a club. Yeah. They should open <laughs> a studio. Because mm. the first LP that they made in it would pay for the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, we decided to open a bloody club that cost us more money than bloody Elon Musk has got. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hell, mate. Talk about make a mistake. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. But again, you know, being at the premiere last night as I was and seeing the people whose um, lives were shaped by the Hacienda, Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose you have to say that if you'd have had a studio, nobody would have ever been in it apart from a load of scabby musicians. So, yeah, you know, in a funny way, culturally, from a fashion point of view and from a music point of view, the Hacienda helped with Factory Records. Yeah. It helped Joy Division and New Order to change the world. You know, yes. So it is one of those things that um, Manchester is very, very culturally important from that point of view. And again, it was done on a whim, you know, walking down Fifth Avenue, five o'clock in the morning, watching the sunrise in New York, going, oh, God, these clubs in Lund- in New York are fantastic. We should open one in Manchester, mm. like a bunch of bloody idiots. Who listens to people <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning when they've been up all night? <laughs> no one listens to them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, and it worked, you know, but I mean, what an education. Mm. It was a very harsh um, education. But as Tony said, you know, he said, um, I've done a favour keeping you poor. He said, because uh, you make great music poor. <laughs> that, that's mm, true yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I did manage to get there in 96 to the club as well. So um, I thank you oh, for that good. before it closed. Yeah, you must have just made it then in I did. I had a great night. It was it was a bit scary, but it was a good night. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was a bit got- scary, but it was a good night. Thank exactly. you. Uh, that's that, that probably one of the strangest conversations I've had uh, all week. <laughs> so, yeah, we're playing Unknown Pleasures. We're yep, yep. Um, actually to get back on course. Uh, we're celebrating 40 years of Ian Curtis's life and legacy and also 10 years of The Light, which is uh, wonderful. Um, the, you know, COVID <clears throat> has kicked a hole in all our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's a bit weird, but, I mean, we, we've we enjoyed what we're doing. We've just done a huge tour of America, which was fantastic, although travelling was a nightmare. Mm. Oh, my God, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we're enjoying it immensely. And, you know, playing the New Order set gives me the chance to play a lot of songs that New Order will never play and would never play. Mm-hmm. So I'm delighted about that. So I get to, um, we get to keep ourselves very fresh by um, uh, sort of flirting with New Order yeah. because there's so many songs that we're playing. We're playing about, it's only an opening set, so we do six New Order songs, um, six or seven, depending on the length. And um, we've got about 40 that we choose from. Um, obviously, the LPs, we're, we're very well-versed in playing the LPs now, which is great. And, yeah, I mean, it's weird. You know, we've just done the classical concerts, the classical Joy Division concerts in England, which were playing the songs in a completely we, – we, we played a whole tour of America, learned the songs one way, then had to completely forget it and learn them all another way for the <laughs> classical. And now – uh, tomorrow we start practicing to come to see you. Um, wow. We've got to learn them all again the other way. So I was like, well, I mean, if this doesn't keep you young, um, nothing will. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and yeah. To say the least. 
Uh, Peter, this is a, a slightly random question, but listening to Unknown Pleasures, um, I remember what, what you've written in in your book and in your books, which are all amazing, by the way, Be- beautifully written and hilarious, I should say. Um, uh, the recording of Unknown Pleasures, when over the course of what three or four weekends, when you three had a full time, yeah, yeah, when, when you had a full time job, and yeah. were you were you still working at the Manchester Ship Canal Company at that time, or yeah. was it somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were working during the week. I'm trying to picture the kind of creation of the musical magic on the weekend, <laughs> and then sort of schlepping off to work on the Monday morning, and literally sitting at your desk. And like yeah, at, because at, at, at nine Martin o'clock on that Monday morning, on working through the night. What what paperwork were you actually doing on that Monday morning <laughs> for the Manchester Ship Canal Paper Company? I was staring glassily forward like that. <laughs> 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 And I, I mean, I mean, it was it, it was a double pronged attack because the gigs had the same effect on you. Yeah, because I drove the van, right? Yeah, yeah, with yeah, the yeah. Gear in. yeah. I was always last in, first yeah, out. Yeah. So we'd drive to London and drive back, and I'd get home about God four or five in the morning, and then I'd literally. Yeah. My mum would wake me an hour later and I'd have to drive to work. And I had quite a cool game, actually. There was a pedestrian crossing just in front of where I worked in the Manchester Ship Canal Company. And it always seemed to be the one I'd stop to let everybody cross the road. I'd fall asleep. (laughs) Uh And then someone had banged on the window who I was working with. And going, good gig, Peter. Was it a good gig? Because they always knew me. I'd be like, oh, man, you know. So, yeah, Martin Hannett... was like a vampire and he would only work at night, (laughs) which was good for Tony because the night rate, I mean, the studios then 24 track studio was booked up 24 hours a day. So people were coming in during the day and the night and you got your session, you know, you got your slot of 12 hours and the 12 hours during the night was obviously cheaper. So Martin Hannett fed into this with Tony and Factory Records. And of course, when we when he said to us, all right, well, um, you're coming to do your album, which we were delighted about, very excited. We had most of the songs written. Um, and I think the, we, we wrote two songs in the studio. One was Candidate and the other one was Safety to Wear. Yep. It's because Martin wanted more songs to choose from. Um, we'd given away... Uh, atmosphere and dead souls <laughs> so we couldn't put them on the album because it wasn't allowed because we were punks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'd lost two of our greatest songs um so yeah martin was a little bit miffed at that and that's why he made us write a couple more which didn't get used only candidate got used on the album so the thing is is that we went into the studio probably about eight o'clock at night very excited and then we worked while seven in the morning um, wow. So for the first weekend, it was a novelty. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, you weren't very popular with your girlfriend because you just crashed out on the couch when you got home. But it was actually okay. It's it's a very odd thing working at night in those days. Yeah, yeah. Because it was so quiet. You know, there was no mobile phones or anything. There was no social media. You you were just sat there mm. in an empty studio, usually freezing because they'd turn the, the heating off at night. Um, and it was quite eerie. Yeah, it was really yeah, weird, yeah, yeah. you know, being at those up at that time. But it, it worked. We we recorded the songs very quickly. Uh, we played them all live, and um, Ian Curtis's vocals were done. 
demo wise while we played live and then they were recorded again for separation Mm -hmm. uh, then Martin Hannett would record the instruments again, which was what freaked us out, to get separation. So he'd get the the run-through of the song, say four minutes, and then he'd replace the bass with a clean bass. He'd replace the vocal with a clean vocal. He'd replace the guitar with a clean guitar, but always keeping the spirit of the take. Yeah. Uh, and then he'd replace the drums wow. so that he got clarity. So he got the performance and clarity. It was actually very, very clever, which we didn't realize at the time. Because while you were doing it, you were doing, what are you doing, Martin? The bass part was great. What are you doing? Why are we doing it again? You know, and he just got shut up and do it. <laughs> well, it was it was amazing that it didn't sound sterile because that... No, kind of no. I mean, he, he really was. I mean, you know... As, as a musician, sometimes it, it, it gets me down that, you know, Martin Hannett's production gets all the plaudits here. I mean, he didn't write the songs. No, he didn't change all, the order of the songs. He didn't do anything like that. Yeah. So the thing is, is that what he did know was how to make a great sounding album mm. that would last forever. You know, when I'm sadly dead and gone, people will be listening to Joy Division in the same way that I listen to The Doors, yeah, um, yeah. the same way that I listen to The Velvet Underground, etc. He really did make a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And that was the sad thing, actually, about the way that Factory treated him at the end, just yeah. because they fell out over a studio or a bloody club. Mm. Um, he didn't deserve treating the way that he was treated, you know, but... That's just life. I mean, ironically, Factory did exactly the same thing, uh, savage takeover of the company that New Order did to me when they reformed as New Order. They yeah, did a yeah. hostile takeover of the limited company that owned the um, uh, the assets, in this case, the trademark, and yeah, yeah. they devalued my trademark ownership from 25% to 1%. So they get 99% and I get 1% of New Order going forward, which I've been fighting for 11 years, mm. um, which is very, very difficult. An awful, an yeah, awful yeah. ending. But, you know, rock and roll, as we know, is full of them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, have you ever met a happy musician? Uh, it doesn't help, I don't think, if they have. No, no, no definitely not. They're always moaning about something. You know, I wrote this, I wrote that, I should have got yeah, this, yeah, I yeah. should have got that. So, yeah, it's very much a standard um, standard yeah, procedure. Yeah. But, again, you know, it doesn't stop it um, hurting you uh, forever. And, mm. yeah, you've just got to keep fighting, haven't you? That's the thing. Yeah, that's I, th I think we're going to need to uh, close up soon. I think we've got time for one more. Okay, can I can I ask you a new order question? Because a lot of people yeah. talk about Blue Monday, but for me, when I first heard everything's gone green, that blew me away in a, in a much more you know substantial way. Mm -hmm. Was that song written with the Hacienda in mind, with a nightclub sound? Because <laughs> you got sequences. It's kind of a punk disco thing in '81, which is so early. It's incredible. No, it was written very early on. It was actually the B side of Procession, wasn't it? Mm. So um, it was the um, Roland drum machine that we used on Truth. It was yep. that playing and it was um, a uh, control voltage pulsing a um, synthesizer. And that was how that song came about with the bass line and then the vocal mm. and the guitar just put onto it. I mean, you know, so songs like that are so simple. Mm. And yet, oh my God, you tried. Oops, sorry. 
you sorry about that uh, songs like that are so simple and yet are so difficult to write mm. you know i mean it's it's incredible that blue monday actually took us start to finish about six months yeah, yeah. Uh, everything's gone green we did in a couple of hours mm. you know great bass line mm. um the echo on the bass line i i don't even know where that came from i was just messing about with an echo pedal and and found it did did it did it did it did it did it you know it was just so simple and so effective mm. and it was one of the first vocal lines that we wrote because we used to write the vocal lines together um a lot of the vocal lines used to come from jams barney would just have half a bottle of perno and then start ranting and raving <laughs> over the top uh, everything's gone green was one of those uh, and then we would just listen to all the takes and we'd distill bits and put it together um, and you know it became a typical new order song in the way that it has no chorus yeah. but in reality it has three choruses it's just that they're all different yet because the music is so strong Mm. It's very, very uh, effective. Mm. Nice. And we, we, yeah, I mean, it was just such a learning curve to be without Ian, where with with most of the vocal lines that Ian wrote, I'd say 90% of them, none of us had any input to it. Mm. Very few we would have input on them. You know, a lot of the time he was actually, and I'm delighted to say it, and I don't think I can I think I can say it without fear of contradiction, that his vocal lines were inspired by the bass lines. The bass lines always came first, his vocal always came after. So um, it was a wonderful combination. But when we got to New Order, of course, the big man was missing. Mm. Oh, man, and that was, oh, God. You know, it's times like that when you've lost someone. And only when you lose them do you realise what you had. Mm, that is the heartbreaking point in the whole bloody thing, especially with the circumstances. And it was very, very difficult to galvanise ourselves to replace him because we didn't even want to bloody replace him, you know? Mm. We just wanted to carry on doing it, but we did. Mm. And we went through it, and I must admit that the three of us actually wrote, me, Barney and Steve wrote all the vocal lines right up to technique. Uh, until Barney decided he wanted to do it on his own, which he did. He did, he did the odd song on his own, but mm. yeah, not um, the majority of the songs were written by the three of us, which was great. You know, a great springboard, shall we say, for our solo projects and mm. for the rest of the you know the way the way that we do it. But yeah, great song. I wish I could write another. <laughs> it's gone green, well, mate. It's still but, time. You know, it's still one of the time. weird things about songwriting is mm. is that when you're young and you have no songs. They're dead easy to write. Mm. And then when you've got 300, <laughs> all of a sudden they're very difficult. <laughs> Hard work, yeah. Well, listen, listen, Peter, it's been a real honour speaking to you today. I've just received an email uh, saying that the uh, your next interview is... is oh, right, is, is, okay, is then. Blimey, yeah, we better move on. So we better move Don't on. Don't be so interested in the pair, the lot of you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's You're been welcome. a real highlight to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. Can't wait to see you, see you uh, in the soon. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Cheers. Peter. Thanks a lot. Thank Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.